0: Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah, we did that sermon like eight weeks ago. I'm sorry. We're walking through Mark in a way that looks at the Passion Week, or what we call the Holy Week, one day at a time. We've done it over seven weeks. Uh, and so today we are at the crucifixion. This is where we would normally be and will be on Good Friday. But we wanted to take a long look at each day, Sunday through resurrection, of Jesus' life. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 47. Uh, you can go there as they get prepared, uh, as we get prepared to open it up. Uh, I like. The spring, it's not my favorite. I love the, the fall better. But my dad, one of the things that reminds me of him so my dad. He loved the spring. He just, it was his time of year. And one of the things he would do when I was a kid growing up is he would take me out of school for a week, even before Easter vacation. So maybe this is why I loved it. Uh, to do a week of fishing uh, up in the California mountains with my uncle. And so I think it was more just an excuse for him and his brother-in-law to get together and have fun. But I got to come along. Uh, and so one of the things that kind of we enjoyed is just, you know, you're fishing all day, new camp every night. But I was little, so like I was maybe seven, eight years old. And at night, uh, after dinner, after dark... They had this big fire going, and they would drag my cot up because we slept outside because that's what we did. And he would, they would put me by the fire, and then they would talk, right? And I remember listening to these conversations of these two men who influenced my life more than anybody, and it went dark. I heard things that they probably didn't think I heard. Um, but it changed how I view a lot of things. Like, So my dad was a Marine, but he didn't stay in long because World War II ended about the time he got in. But my uncle was a career soldier, and he came back from Vietnam with just some things that just he couldn't get over. And so I understood guilt and shame and isolation in a way because I would hear him break down. And, and he would go to places even my dad couldn't go with him. Uh, And so I learned something about the power of guilt and shame and the isolation that it produces, and it kind of was unnerving as a kid. Um, And so we're going to witness today the crucifixion. Now what you know, what you've been told, is that Jesus is dying for your sin, and that's absolutely true. But do do you see your sin there? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? What we do see is shame. Because a lot of times the only way we understand sin or guilt is the shame it brings, and we understand shame as it pushes us very quickly into isolation. So what's the difference between, before we get there, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Because I think there's a difference. Uh, and let's understand that a little bit before we look at the cross. Guilt says this: "I've done a bad thing, right I've done bad." And I, I'd hear that in my uncle's voice, right? I've killed. Um, Shame is, I'm a killer. It's very much on your identity. Uh, It's not just that I've done bad, it's that I am bad. So there's a small threshold that crosses between I've done something and I am something, and we need to understand that. Um, One of the things that we're part of a network called Acts 29, we love it. Uh, One of the things they do is resource pastors. So I got to hear... um, a man by the name of Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist and follows church. Uh, and he's a born-again believer, loves Jesus. And he got to talk to us about shame and the dynamics of it. And it was very helpful for us. Um, but he said, here's one thing that shame does. He said, first of all, um, it, you don't even, it's hard to define, but everybody knows when you feel it. Everybody knows when you feel it. He says, here's how it's different than guilt and experience. And guilt, if it's, it's, first of all, guilt is always relational. If I've sinned against you or, did or hurt your feelings or done something, I'm kind of drawn to you. I want to I, I have some transaction to make. I, we want, to do, I want to do something. I want, I want to ask for forgiveness. I'm drawn to you. Now, whether I go or not, that's a different thing. But guilt kind of draws me into the person I've offended. He said, shame is very different. He said, psychologically, shame pushes all the parts of your brain to its own corner. Thinking, feeling, sensing. And they stay there. And they don't come back until somebody goes and gets them. Shame becomes debilitating because it completely isolates. That's where it goes. That's how it grows. And it's very different. Here's what shame will tell you. Um, This is what it feels like. You're never going to be good enough. It's a persistent sense that you are unworthy of love and you will never belong. And it lodges deep in your identity and it doesn't let go. And according to Kurt Thompson, it is so normal for you to live in shame, you don't even see it anymore. It's written your story and your ending and you're just living it out. Shame says this, abandonment is just around the corner and you and I both know it. Yeah, I heard that as a kid um, from two men I loved. So so know this, as we're going to look at the crucifixion today, here's what shame does. It kicks open the door to isolation. Now, as a believer, if you're in Christ, you are never to run through that door, but I guarantee you that you do. It's so normal. You're like, yep, that's where I belong. That's who I am. So when shame happens, it kicks open the door to isolation, and you run through it. And that's where it grows. So let's understand this as we read the crucifixion i want you to see the shame of jesus it might be abstract for you to understand that your sin is being dealt with on the cross but here's what it's not abstract he is being openly shamed over and over and over we saw that last week a little bit um, but with this we can understand we can feel that um, we can feel that. So the goal is to answer this question in a more precise way. Who do you say that I am? Started in Mark chapter 8 when Peter says, Well, you're the Christ. And every week we've got a better idea of what that means. So that's our goal today to understand that in a new way. And also this, this is how we're gonna understand it. Things died on the cross with Jesus. And part of it is guilt, part of it is shame. And part of it is isolation. And if we don't understand how that works, we're not going to be able to answer, who do you say that I am? So I want you to see that today. Now, there's three movements. I'm not going to pre-read it. We're just going to jump into the text and stop and talk about it a little bit. And here's the three movements. The first is going to be a crucifixion that you're going to see. You should be familiar with this. Mark is very just, he truncates things. He moves quickly. Um, That's one of the reasons I like it. Um, So you're going to see the crucifixion. Then you're going to see Jesus' death on the cross and then you're going to see his burial so we're going to walk through that and i want you to keep your eyes open for how shame opens this door to isolation and how jesus on the cross just put he just crushes it he crushes guilt and he crushes your warning system for it called shame and he destroys isolation this is so good all right so let's walk into this uh well hold on a minute i gotta pray then we'll then we'll move into it Remind me next time. dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. Um, I often forget you are here and you desire a conversation with us, Lord. You're here to speak. You're here to be worshiped. You're here to love us. And so we give you this time. We ask for your help. This is your word. You have a story to tell us. You're presenting yourself to us today in word. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you show us? In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, just to catch up, because we are doing this strangely, right? So, so far, Jesus has been through trial last week. Both the religious leaders and Rome and the crowds are like, nah, we don't want him. So Pilate, against his bitter judgment, actually condemns him to crucifixion, flogging him, And as you remembered, flogging is an extremely violent act. In fact, a lot of times people die from flogging, right? Um, Organs exposed, ripped apart, um, losing massive amounts of blood. And he's mocked by the military. And then we get to verse 21. So here we go. They're taking him out of the city, just so you know. They're moving him out to crucify him. And they compel the passerby. This is verse 21 of chapter 15. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come on down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So a few things I want you to see in Jesus being crucified. First is this. Note where it takes place because all of this matters. Every single thing that Mark puts into his gospel, as all the gospel writers have put in, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word is there for a reason. They take Jesus outside of Jerusalem. Not just because you don't really want to do this in the town square because it's kind of violent and bloody. No, that's not really the reason why. There might have been some practical reasons, but the place of Golgotha, or this, this skull-shaped rock, it's outside of the city rolls. But you know where it's at? It's like at seven corners. Everybody goes through there. This is a public place. You're not going to come in and out of Jerusalem without seeing what's going on. So Rome is making this execution public. Well, they have a motive. Their motive is peace you cross us we will violently crush you ask these guys and you know how it works so jesus is crucified outside of the city it's on passover but spiritually here's what that means he was spit out of the city the crowd didn't want him his people didn't want him the religious leaders didn't want him was certainly didn't want him Here's how the writer of Hebrews makes sense of this in verse 12 of chapter 13. So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. This is a story of full and final and total rejection. There's nothing about this man, as we read in Isaiah 53, that was worth looking at. In fact, you wouldn't have looked at him. Just like the scapegoat that removed the stain of sin out of the camp, Away from the holy God of Israel. Jesus was drugged outside the city and crucified outside of the gates, away from his people, away from the temple. Nobody was with him. So it's a public shaming ceremony. Everybody's gonna see it. Everybody. Okay, and so his crucifixion happened on a cross. That sounds obvious. But did you notice that Mark just says, and he was crucified, and then moves on? Two reasons for that. One, it's not the point. There's more to it. But also, everybody knew what crucifixion was. His original audience, he didn't have to explain it. So, he's crucified on a cross. Um, What is crucifixion? Let me tell you the basis. It was probably started in Persia. Probably made famous by Alexander, uh, by the Greeks, as they conquered the world. Became spread around. But the Romans, man, they perfected it. They took it to the next level. They got it to a place where it was just probably in their eyes a thing of beauty. Um, now, Mark doesn't say much, but let me tell you what it is. Um, they would put the cross beam on you. You had to carry your own cross literally out of the city. So they would lash it to you. Now, Jesus couldn't make it out of the city. Do you know why? Well, he probably lost a lot of blood. When you lose a lot of blood you don't go very far so they get somebody else to help him carry this cross out of the city uh, so he's not even strong enough anymore to carry this um, we it, apparently mark knows who it is and probably the early church but we don't it's simon somewhere from libya I, we don't know but the point is he's can't even make it to his own crucifixion that's how weak he is once you got there they would take that cross beam and sometimes tie your wrist to it if it already wasn't done or if they were feeling extra froggy, they would nail you to it. So nail your hands probably just inside the wrist so it wouldn't tear off and you would stay there. Nail the wrist to the crossbeam, and then they would, depending on who, how they did it, there's a couple different ways they would do it, but they would usually hoist him up and there was a notch in the beam that was already all the way up and affix him to the cross. Now they would also, they want to prolong this for practical reasons. They want people to see what it looks like to cross Rome, and they want you to be publicly humiliated as long as possible. So they didn't make dying easy. This would last sometimes for more than a day. Uh, They would hoist you up there, and they'd also nail your feet or affix your feet to a little stool down there so that you could push up, because what you died from was fluid in the lungs and asphyxiation. You just couldn't breathe anymore, so if you could push up, Right? On that little stool they would put there, you'd live longer. Isn't that cool? So Jesus is probably on, on a cross like that. This is the method of death. Um, he's naked. Think about shame for a minute. Like, First of all, when you're attacked, if you've ever been, had public violence against you, you're shamed. This was a spectacle. This was, he was the show. He was suffering public violence in his scourging, taken out, crucified with insurrectionists, basically. He's, he's experiencing shame like you and I never, ever will. So this is how he's, he's crucified. Listen to, to some of the reports of the people in Mark. The crowds, they passed by and derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Hey, I thought you were going to destroy the temple. You're going to have to come down if you're going to do that. Right To just kind of wag in their heads. Interesting here, the word that Mark uses for derided, it actually is blaspheme. It's a play on words. They're blaspheming God the Son. They're blaspheming the Christ. Like, huh, we've seen people like you before. Lots of promises. Who else? Oh, well, the scribes and the religious leaders. Verse 32, let the Christ. They got it right. They got the theology right. Let the Christ. Let the chosen king, the anointed one, let the redeemer, the deliverer of Israel, let him come down and deliver himself. Because you know what? If you can't do that, I don't have time for you. And lastly, the criminals. Now, Mark doesn't pick up on the criminal who repents because that's not his story here. He wants you to see, initially, everybody was just like, even those he's crucified with, who he doesn't belong with, are shaming him. So Jesus is crucified on a cross in open shame. Shame opens the door to isolation. Here we go. Verse 33. Jesus dies. And when the sixth hour, that is noon, basically the way they ran the clock. When the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark writes it down in Aramaic because that's how Jesus said it. That was his language. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah? I don't know. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, well, well let's wait. Maybe Elijah will come and take him. Now, this wine, we don't know if it's a taunt or if it's mercy, But wine will numb the pain. But we don't know if they just wanted to raid around to see if Elijah... I, I don't know. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly... This man was the son of God. So, Jesus dies in a story of shame. Shame does that. Shame writes a story. Um, And here's how the plot line of shame goes. (sighs) Condemnation. Separation. Step back from us a little bit. And it ends in isolation. That's that's the plot line that shame does. If you're honest with you, you're terrified of that. And you will look at events in your life. Maybe it's a failed business. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe it's the fact that nobody really cares what you think. And you put that into your story of shame. And the outcome is always isolation. Um, Listen to Jesus' words. My God, my God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? So one commentator says this is the full horror of man's sin being experienced by God the Son, and I believe it. See, so here Jesus feels the full weight of sin and separation and responds by what? When you and I feel shame, we cut from our friends, from people, because our way to heal shame is to hide it. What does he do? What does he do? He cries out. He cries out to God the Father, call it a prayer, call it a prayer of desperation, call it a scream. It's kind of what the original text calls it, a scream of lament. Jesus presses into his relationship with God at his worst moment, and he does a couple things. One is this, at the very time when everything in his life would have said, you have failed, Jesus instead Being real with his circumstances, real with the isolation he's experiencing, presses into his identity as the beloved son. Do you know what he's quoting there? It's Psalm 22. You know what Psalm 22 says? Let me just read a couple things out of this. But I am a worm and not a man. By the way, this was written a long time before Jesus died. All who see me mock me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melting. My tongue sticks to my mouth. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They divide my garments among them. Oh, Jesus knew exactly who he was. And if you read on in Psalm 22, God shows up. Verse 19, it it, it shifts. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. Deliver my soul. Jesus pushes into his identity as the beloved son. This is my beloved son. He's living the life of the Christ of Israel. This is the story that's going to play out. He knows it. He could have never been prepared for it. Jesus lets Psalm 22 explain his story for him. See, when you experience shame, if you don't press into your relationship with God, with others, you have nowhere else to go but let shame define your story. See, Jesus knows that death is not the end of his story. And he knows it because of what God has said. And he does not let shame narrate the story he's in and there's nobody else on this earth who had a better reason to do it. So he's, he's crucified, but he dies under God's judgment. Did you see Darkness. Now, if you've ever read any literature, you know what darkness means. It's judgment. Jesus dies under God's judgment. It's real darkness. You know, several weeks ago, um, Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he meant it. Here's the punchline of Mark's gospel. Who do you say that I am? The punchline comes from a Roman centurion the last person in this book who should say anything of value about Jesus. Anything. Listen to what he says. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath or died, he said, truly this man is the son of God. The most accurate depiction and answer to the question, who do you say that I am, comes from a Roman centurion who's basically overseeing the execution. What did he see that the crowd didn't see? We we know what they valued. Hey, there's no strength in you. You can't even save yourself. They're valuing life and shame and healing through using your strength to overcome. And the centurion who knows how strength and violence works, by God's grace, figures out That God the Son uses his strength to stay on the cross. He's like, whoa. It's not so much, I don't think it's not so much a fear, but we've we've screwed this up, we shouldn't have crucified him. He's like, this is God the Son because he uses his strength in a different way. Not like we use it. He uses it to stay fixed to the cross, to bear the full weight of sin, to be your reproach. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that by God. Hmm real strength and glory staying on the cross for those he loved um, shame is your story happens real young too and I want to propose to you that shame is not the problem a lot of times we spend our lives trying to get rid of shame Right? Um, a therapist will try to help you manage shame a lot of times pastors will help you try to get rid of shame we do that in various ways I was playing Operation with my granddaughter this week. You know what Operation is? Okay. If you've never played it, it's a really fun, awful game. And it has this, it's a board game that has this picture of this dude laying there who's got like little holes in his body and like his funny bone is on his elbow and his liver and different things. And your goal is to take these little tweezers, which are hooked up to a big red light and a buzzer, and you reach in and you grab the bone and you pull it out. Now, I remember that it was really not that hard. But now they've remade the game. They, everybody ruins everything. They've remade it in a tr- with the trolls. I don't even know what the trolls are, but it's like a cartoon or something. So it's Operation, but on a troll. I, I don't get it. So, But it's ten times harder. So she says, hey, Pappy, let's play this. I'm like, all right, let's do it. I remember this game. And so we're playing it, and none, neither one of us could get one out without hitting the buzzer and making the red light go off. She goes, hey, Pappy, this is how I like to play. Watch this. She took her hand and she put it over the red light. And she was like, "Eh, I got it. (laughs) I have so many things to say. I was like, yes, you did. That's how we handle shame. Now, she was with me. So it was a relationship in tow. Imagine if I said, you know what? If you don't get that out of that troll's hair, I will never be your pappy. Can you imagine that? That's the story you play over and over and over with God. And you you didn't want to hear what he has to say. You're like, I'm going to walk over here. I can't bear what God might say because of my sin. We hide it. We manage it. We ignore it. It's a warning system. Shame opens the door to isolation. Do not be suckered and walk through it. Third, Jesus is buried. Verse 40, there was also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's no small feat, I want to tell you that. God favors trembling courage. I heard that from a friend of mine, but it's true. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Now, why would Pilate ask him that? Jesus died too quick. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. And he and he had been cut out of the rock that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the mother and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph saw where he was laid, which sets us up for Easter. Jesus was dead, fully dead gone, not breathing, blood separating, finished, bore the full judgment of God the Father on our sin. He was kind of wrapped in shame. He was was wrapped. He was wrapped for death and burial. I want to offer three things to you that die on the cross. Jesus. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to understand it. Because although shame opens the door to isolation, Jesus busts down the door. And he will grab anybody that will not run from him. See, what dies with Jesus on the cross is guilt and shame and isolation in this order. Listen, Jesus dies under God's judgment for you. You must know that. In other words, your guilt, your transgression, the fact that all of us in our heart of hearts actually believe it's better to live isolated from God. Jesus dies under God's judgment for you. Romans 8, 20, 8, one says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus See, God comes to find you. That's always been the story of the gospel that happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve are like, you know what, we, we, isolation might be the act of freedom we need. God shows up. Where are you at? What does shame do? You? Oh yeah, it makes you hide. It makes you peel out of your relationships, especially from God. What is Jesus doing? God comes. He's Emmanuel. God shows up, and he takes on God's judgment for us. Know this. If you actually believe this verse, it would change how you live. If you believe that you are not under condemnation, you would understand yourself in a different story. And if you can stand before God, you can stand anywhere, my friend. I promise you. So what is the pressure here? Press into God. This is what Jesus does press into God and let him finish your story. Jesus dies for you. In faith, you die with him. You do not get to finish your story. I don't know if they told you that in the beginning, but you don't. Your life belongs to him. He purchased it. He loves you. So you press in. You press in. So Jesus dies under God's judgment. That means your personal, real guilt dies on the cross with Jesus. You either let him take it or you don't. Secondly, shame. Jesus dies in open shame. Now, this feels more real to us, honestly. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, right, in faith, we become the righteousness of God. That doesn't even make sense. Your shame you're outed on the cross, man. You your shame. Put it this way, you can no longer in Christ believe that you are unworthy of love if you understand that God the Son comes. He bears your guilt, stays on the cross, becomes shame for you. You no longer have the freedom to say, I'm unloved. You just can't do it in good conscience. You were loved by the king of the universe. Let me just ask you this. The last time you experienced shame, when was it? Do you remember? Uh, There's one of my favorite preachers. is an old guy by the name of J.I. Packer, an Anglican preacher, writer, uh, theologian. I remember listening to or reading an article. He said that every time I finished preaching, I walked down from the pulpit and they asked somebody, he said, well, what do you feel? What do you feel? He said, shame, every single time. Shame, shame, shame. There's no way I handled that text well. There's no way I, I gave God glory. Shame. When's the last time you experienced shame? The only thing that disrupts it is actually pressing in and letting God finish that story. Jesus switched identities for you, right? The Christ, he became sin that you might be a new creation. And here's the biggie. This is how Jesus does it all. Jesus died alone for you. Nobody was there. I mean his mom was there, but that doesn't count, right? Everybody's mom is always there. That's, that's who's left. His disciples are long gone. Everybody else was looking for a distance from a distance, right? He's alone. When Jesus died alone, God acted. Did you pick this up? And the temple of the curtain was torn in two. How? From the, bottom, from the top to the bottom, God reaches down and rips the veil on the holiest of holies. He's no more mediator between God and man. They will know me through faith, and I will position myself in their life. I will pour my Spirit of God in them and among them. They will be my temple. How does Jesus destroy your shame? When you experience condemnation, when you separate yourself, He's never going to leave you alone. There's nothing you can do in Christ that will put you in a position where God will turn his face from you. It's already been done, period. That's, this is how he destroys shame. This is how he destroys guilt. He positions himself in your life. You know how the end of Romans chapter eight finishes? Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. Life, death, angels, nobody. There's no condemnation and there's no separation. Because of that, you cannot live in shame. The centurion saw this. He looked to Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that we are to look to the founder and author of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of all the things that Jesus experienced. Why were they despising the shame that was set before him? And he's seated at the right hand, the throne of God. Jesus hated shame. It took his name, it took his body, it took everything from him. He despised it. And it wrapped him and put him down in a tomb. But Jesus finished because he kept his eyes on God the Father. He kept his eyes on the object of affection, you. You are the joy set before him. Jesus became sin that in him you might be a new creation if you will press in and trust him. Listen, friends, I would give anything to go back to that campfire. I would give anything to tell my uncle. Look here. There's only one way out of this. Jesus takes guilt. Jesus takes shame. Jesus destroys isolation. Friends, a lot of things died on the cross with Jesus, but this is the three things I think Mark highlights and I want you to see. Are you going to live in shame? Are you going to finish your story? Can you figure out a better way to write it than God's going to write it? You can't. But I don't know the end. Yeah, you do. It's glory. But I don't know the middle. I'm sorry. You're going to have to learn to trust him. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving yourself for us, for enduring shame, for the joy that's set before you. Let us understand the story, Heavenly Father, as a divine romance, Lord, as the outworking of your love for us because that's exactly what you said it is. Let us receive from you forgiveness and new life. And let us walk in that new life. I pray this for all of us here in the name of Jesus. Amen. So at this time we're going to continue and worship giving the giving advertisement offerings, so it'll be I think we put some floor. Um also uh-